when the China-India border tensions were kind of at their peak, there were internet users suggesting that foreign ministry officials were being weak and traitors and weren't standing up for the motherland. And so there's there's still pressure on that front. But I think I think a lot of it has has kind of been solved by, you know, firstly, Xi Jinping's move towards nationalism and the tone that that's helped set for China's foreign relations, but then also the, the foreign ministry's embrace of wolf warrior diplomacy and just how popular that seems to have been from t-shirts with Yang Jiechi's nationalist slogans on them um, through to viral clips and, and uh, fan sites for, for senior Chinese diplomats. China Civilian Army, The Making of Wolf Warrior Diplomacy, Part 2, a book written by Peter Martin of Bloomberg, co-hosting with me today, Jason Zhou, a current Schwartzman scholar. We ended it right on the cusp of Nixon going to China. And I think, uh, you know, we don't don't necessarily have to do the whole narrative here, but I think it was really interesting. uh, At the end of last show, we ended with the experience of Chinese diplomats as they're sort of exploring the developing world. Because that's where most of the folks in the 50s and 60s ended up being posted to. Um, But as we turn into the early 1970s, then folks get started to get sent to the U.S., to Canada. You get folks going to graduate school at LSE and, and, and in the U.S. There was this fantastic piece of writing you had to kick off a chapter um, uh, talking about some Chinese diplomats who showed up in New York in 1971. What first struck many of them was the colors on clothing, on shop fronts, and on neon signs. They saw a world that seemed physically and even morally jarring compared to the monochrome uniformity of communist Beijing. What was that experience like for these young diplomats venturing out of China in a new era um, where relations between uh, Beijing and the Western world seemed to be changing? Yeah, I think it was. Um, I think it was really exciting for a lot of them. As you said, there were kind of. Mm, moral universes and 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 kind of aesthetic universes that they'd never been able to explore before um and so they they were kind of on this this amazing learning streak and 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 taking information from all around them and from the new york times and listening to the radio and, and and those kind of things but it was it was also a pretty tense experience for them i think you know you got to remember that the cultural revolution was still going on in Beijing and they were on the front lines of, you know, what was ostensibly China's ideological foe, the United States. And they had to deal with how do I navigate this new environment and keep myself safe at the same time? Yeah, the the sort of worlds like worldviews clashing, I think, was captured best in your anecdote about the diplomats who showed up in Canada in 1970, where basically you tell this story that uh, they sort of ventured out to see an old folks home and the diplomats were convinced it was a Potemkin village. And then the uh, Canadians uh, were like, you can just drive anywhere you want and you'll see like another suburb, which looks exactly like (laughs) this suburb. And, you know, they say later we came to understand that these were old people's homes uh, just like this in every city across Canada. And that supply was sufficient to meet local needs. I can't imagine growing up through the the great famine and cultural revolution and all of a sudden having your mind blown by, you know, it's like it's like going to Mars and seeing like alien technology, I imagine. Totally. No, it would have been completely bewildering. And I, I think, you know, they, they all had participated in in hosting foreign governments and foreign dignitaries in Beijing, where there are these incredibly elaborate kind of setups for 
for foreign businesses arriving. Everything is choreographed. The city is is cleaned up. You know, it was like that in the 70s. It's like it now. Just this incredible degree of precision. And it was unthinkable to them that the other foreign countries wouldn't do the same when, when Chinese officials visited. All right, let's, why don't you take us to the death of Mao? So I guess there was this, this period of um, kind of extended political uncertainty where, where China diplomatically started to re-engage with the world, but the future trajectory of the country was, was incredibly unclear. The, the Gang of Four was still running things in Beijing, even after um, Mao Zedong died. And it wasn't at all clear what was going to happen. Um, I think the kind of the last thing on, on, on people's minds, including Chinese diplomats, was the idea that the country was about to embark on, you know, three, four decades of sustained economic reform and that, that Deng Xiaoping, who had been uh, kind of repeatedly sidelined from the leadership of Chinese politics, would come back to power. But as Chinese diplomats around the world kind of tried to piece together what was going on in Beijing, listening to BBC news broadcasts, clipping bits of foreign newspapers up on the wall, they, they sort of gradually came to realize that actually the time of the Gang of Four was over. The short-lived um, leadership of Hua Guofeng came and went relatively quickly, and eventually Deng Xiaoping kind of emerged as, as the paramount leader. And of course, we know that, that he would set China off on this, this incredible new trajectory uh, experimenting with capitalism. Uh, Deng's sort of openness to foreign ideas uh, I think is captured in a really fascinating way by his trip to America, where, you know, not only does he sort of wear a Stetson and go to barbecues, um, but also there was this fascinating detail that you that you had, um, which I'd love to hear the backstory on if there if there is one of him wanting to see an American SOE. I cannot imagine what the sort of State Department bureaucrats handling that request thought of. Eventually, they took him to the U.S. Mint. Uh, is there any, do you, do you, did you dig into this at all? Like what, what, what was going on there? Were there other candidates for other SOEs? Is it, I, I don't know the U.S. side of the story. I think that I would have to check. I think that came from Huang Hua's memoir, um, where he talks about this desire that Deng had to kind of see both sides of the U.S., the state-owned side and the, the capitalist side. And, you know, clearly that was a that was a pretty difficult order for them to fulfill. But I, I, I've, I've never heard the US side. I'd love to hear it. So if anyone wants to uh, dig into those Carter administration archives or lives in Atlanta, uh, let me know and I will run that article on China Talk. Um, Chinese diplomats in the 1980s. It must have been one real head trip. The, uh, you know, life was changing pretty dramatically domestically in China, but also, you know, you had. You had the foreign ministry, which had to adapt to the times as well. Yeah. So the foreign ministry underwent this kind of, um, like the rest of the Chinese bureaucracy, this kind of wholesale modernization effort, really kind of boring, but crucial bureaucratic stuff, like how cadres uh, evaluated for their performance. Should it be based solely on ideology or should it be based on some other metric of professionalism? How are they going to be trained? When are they going to retire? Um, all of these kind of things that like added together create a professional bureaucracy that works effectively and seems professional to the outside world. China kind of started to work on those in the 80s. And, and I guess there was this process that was a little bit similar to, you know, in the 50s, that the, the Chinese foreign ministry had very consciously modeled itself on, on the Soviet 
diplomatic system and tried to learn lessons from the way that the Soviet Union did things. I guess there was, there was a bit of a parallel process going on in the 80s. You know, I, I talked to officials who have worked on the State Department China desk in that period, and, and, and Chinese diplomats would come in with the most basic questions like, how does your social security system work? And would just start piecing together bits of information about how the U.S. government apparatus functioned. And so they, they kind of did the same thing to the U.S. Uh, in the 80s that they had done to the Soviet Union in the 50s. So what what bits do you think ended up getting absorbed? Hmm, it's a good question. I mean, even more recently, there were a seri- there was a series of sort of reforms that took place to China's foreign ministry in the, and especially its embassies in 2017, where the, the the role of ambassadors was strengthened and Chinese ambassadors were given kind of reporting responsibilities for representatives of all different Chinese ministries in the embassy, you know, whether that's agriculture or Ministry of Commerce or whatever. And that reform, I think, was quite explicitly modeled on the way that U.S. ambassadors oversee the duties of, of, of various different pieces of the bureaucracy within U.S. embassies. So I guess that the that learning process, despite all of the ideological confrontation between the two countries now, that learning process has never really stopped. So... One other interesting thing that you recount from this era is that after Xi Jinping's former father-in-law, who was stationed in London, um, had a lot of somewhat favorable things to say about capitalism and observed a lot of interesting things, especially during, for instance, the Thatcher era in, in the UK. Do you have any sense for to what extent um, those views might have made its way to Xi and to what extent what sort of relations she had with his father-in-law? Yeah, I don't know any detail about that relationship. Um, <laughs> there might be, there might be some people out there who know more than me. There's no indication that it was, it was tense or, or difficult, but I guess that, you know, she's father kind of outranked Kerpoir, the, the ambassador we're talking about inside the Chinese system. Um, and I, I don't, I don't know whether they discussed Kerr's views on capitalism and democracy, but certainly, as you both know, those those were very much fashionable topics of kind of for, for intellectually curious people in in 1980s China and elite circles, and I'm sure that those same ideas came across um, kind of Xi's inbox. I don't I don't know whether the two of them ever exchanged thoughts explicitly, though. So interesting to think about as like a, a historical nugget. Yeah, I mean, I remember I remember researching it and thinking that Kerr was just the most, you know, like one of the most extraordinary figures I'd read about. He was so open-minded and curious and, you know, a, a, able just to, to reconsider the most basic assumptions that um, that he had about how the world worked. And I was so impressed by him and, and, and kind of spent a long time getting as much detail out of his memoir as I could. And it wasn't until kind of sometime later that I thought, oh, yeah, wasn't Xi Jinping's first father-in-law an ambassador in London? And then it, it kind of clicked and all came together that, oh, <laughs> wow, that's him. But I, you know, I, I thought he was fascinating even before I, I was, you know, I kind of made that link. I think we know the answer. The, the first wife was too, was too liberal. Yeah, I mean, she she was certainly too liberal in the sense that she wanted to live in the United Kingdom, and that wasn't um, that wasn't going to work out for Xi Jinping, who uh, already had his eyes on the path to power in Beijing. So let's talk about a few other sort of leading lights of the past thirty years of Chinese um, Chinese diplomacy. Um, uh, you know, Chen Shi Chen. What do you think we can learn uh, from his story 
and maybe let's stop before Tiananmen. I think one of the interesting things about Chen is, you know, because he was a Soviet expert, he on a personal level kind of went through the the, the same process of like falling in love with the Soviet Union and then slowly falling out of love with it, that, that China's political system went through writ large. So he, he started off, I think, in the 1950s as a junior diplomat in Moscow. He returned um, a couple of times later on in his career and was kind of bewildered to find that this plate, which was supposed to represent the future of humanity, was now kind of looking a little bit creaky and unimpressive. And, and he started to think, you know, how, how does this fit in with my ideological beliefs and all of the stuff that I was taught about the Soviet Union? He also, he also noticed that, you know, we, I think lots of people enjoy kind of telling Soviet jokes as they gripe about the world. And he noticed that like Soviet citizens complained an awful lot. Um, and he was struck by that too. <laughs> So, you know, he, he kind of had this like personal experience of, um, of seeing the Soviet Union cut down to size in his, in his own eyes, which I think very much, um, informed his ability to be such an open-minded, you know, foreign minister. Yeah. So let's come to June 4th, which is a really interesting dynamic for a few reasons. First off, you know, it was clear that there were a lot of liberals in the foreign ministry. And I think even at some point they were protesting with the students in the streets. But then after Tiananmen, their job is to, um, you know, slowly build China back from the uh, diplomatic isolation, which, uh, uh, which Tiananmen Square engendered. So, you know, one of the puzzles I have uh, thinking back on this history is just how quickly it happened. Um, that uh, China was able to reconcile the world to, um, you know, the the continued leadership of the folks who perpetrated uh, Tiananmen Square. So what was what was what was going on there, and how was the foreign ministry able to um, finesse what's a what was you know at the time seemed like a pretty tall order? Yeah, I, I think it was an incredible struggle for um for a lot of people in the ministry, both in terms of just it was an exceptionally hard sell to tell the world that China's economic opening up was going to continue even after this um, very violent crackdown in Beijing. But also in terms of kind of on a more personal level, like that, this just jarring experience of, especially for young diplomats, of thinking that your country was heading in one direction and was kind of on the, the right side of history and then finding out that, that you now lived in a pariah state which was being shunned by the world and and represented a political system that had made a very, very different set of, of, of choices. So I think it was really tough. There was a lot of confusion at the beginning. And I guess in those circumstances, Chinese diplomats did what they always do when they're not quite sure of the right response, which was to be really prickly and kind of shout down foreign counterparts and tell them not to interfere in China's business. And But I think, you know, longer term, Tian Chi Chen, who was heading up the the ministry, but also China's top leaders realized that that the country needed a more compelling um, vision for, for, for its international role if it was going to come back from this. And that involved, of course, continuing after a, you know, a tricky political process, continuing economic reform in Beijing, trying to, to host the Olympics to kind of boost Chinese soft power, 
making promises about improvements to its human rights record. We can we can debate how sincere those promises were. And, you know, of course, engaging in, in kind of friendship di diplomacy on its periphery and, and trying to kind of slowly, one by one, pick off countries which had sanctioned it or shunned it in the aftermath. I mean, it's really interesting because I think you close the book with the sort of hint that we may be going back to more of a cultural uh, revolution era style of diplomacy. But it's interesting thinking back to the response to Tiananmen and it being almost like the apotheosis of the reforms which happened post Mao. And I don't think a sort of Mao era diplomatic corps would have been able to ultimately pull off the the successes that you saw from uh, from the Chinese foreign ministry over the course of the 90s. I think it's also especially remarkable, given that I think, as you know, in the book, a bunch of Chinese diplomats or a bunch of folks from the Chinese embassies actually defected um, right after Tiananmen. And it would I it wouldn't be surprising if, if the leadership took that as a sort of indication of the unreliability uh, of the foreign ministry. So the ability of Chiang, Chiang to really hold together the ministry and, and still be able to to do these creative maneuvers is, is pretty impressive. Yeah, I think so too. Um, but, you know, I think I think it, it really comes down to that kind of core value of the Chinese foreign ministry, which is discipline and the ability to follow orders. And, you know, as we know, when the leadership decides that it wants to push hard on ideology or promote the cult of personality at home, the foreign ministry will kind of move very, very quickly uh, in that direction, whether it's in the, the 60s or now under Xi Jinping often with, with pretty disastrous consequences for China's international reputation. But when the leadership decides that it wants to win, ov win over others and, and, and charm the world like it did in the 50s or the 90s, Chinese diplomats can, can work toward that objective with incredible professionalism. So the system, I think, um, compared with, the say, the US, is just much, much more responsive to what the leadership wants. If you think about the tone that Donald Trump and even to some extent, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo set for the State Department. I don't think that they felt that that bureaucracy was as responsive to what they wanted. Uh, you know, it, it was as responsive as they as they would have hoped. And you know, I guess that's because U.S. Foreign Service officers swear an oath of loyalty to uh, a, a notion of the United States, which is much more, and the U.S. government, which is much much broader than any single political party or leader. And that's not really true of any part of the Chinese um, government apparatus. Um, it very much functions um, to work toward the whims of the Communist Party. So, Pete, since you brought up the comparison, you know, you were reporting out of Beijing for a while. You spent the past uh, year plus now uh, in Washington covering the Pentagon intelligence community and moonlighting as a State Department correspondent. Um what is the experience like as a journalist? How does it sort of compare sitting in, you know, foreign ministry briefings being yelled at versus being yelled at presumably by American officials who are upset with one story or another? Yeah, there's a lot less yelling, um, I guess, is the, the kind of obvious starting point. And, you know, the, the information environment is so much more open. You showed up in the Biden era. Well, I don't know. Um, I actually hear from colleagues that Trump officials, despite the kind of public anti-media bluster, were very, very talkative in in private. And of course, you can see from just the kind of public record of reporting on the administration that it was very, very leaky. I think that the Biden folks are a little bit more um, 
or a lot more disciplined about the way that they deal with the media um, and, and kind of leaks as such are a little bit and harder to, to come by. But in comparison with Beijing, it's it's kind of night and day. You know, Washington's information environment is incredibly open, you know, just by going to think tank meetings and having coffees with people, you pick up just this this massive amount of information. And then if you, if you, if you, I, you know, if your expectations are those of like a, a political reporter based in China, it's, it seems like you, you're kind of struggling to, to deal with a deluge of, of facts coming your way rather than, rather than kind of feeding off scraps in the way that you are in the Chinese political system. I can elaborate a little bit more. I don't know what. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep, yeah, let's keep going. I, I, I want to do more on this theme. Uh, where do you want to take it, Pete? Um, I mean, I, I guess that the part of my beat now, which is most similar to reporting on Chinese politics, is the, the CIA part. And in, in some ways, it's, but maybe because I'm used to reporting on China, that's where I feel most at home. Um, it's much easier to talk to the CIA than it is most parts of the, the Chinese government. And their, you know, their media relations folks are very friendly. And, but, but what the, the big thing I think that, that they have in common is that, um, you know, I can't remember who it was that said this about Chinese politics. I wish I could, but that reporting on Chinese politics is like trying to review a play when you can't see any of the actors. All you can see is the audience response. So you're kind of chasing after these like secondary images Ooh. of what's happening. And um, that's that's definitely true of the, the Chinese Communist Party. So you're talking to foreign business people, foreign diplomats, um, Chinese think tankers, Chinese scholars, a lot of the time uh, reading official media accounts and trying to kind of decipher what these various shadows tell you about what's really happening under the surface. And reporting on the CIA is a little bit like that. You know, you're kind of into this world of former officials, kind of in, intelligence intellectuals, that that kind of thing, and, and slowly trying to piece together, okay, all of these people are saying this thing, I think that's what's happening, you know, inside the agency right now. Um, and then you try and confirm it with, you know, with current people. But that's, that's the most comparable part. And for, for that reason, that's kind of what I've gravitated toward in Washington too. Yeah. So one of your more remarkable pieces of late on the intelligence beat are were all these Biden appointed officials complaining to you that the CIA wasn't telling them enough about China uh, and they didn't understand the country. Like what's what's going on there? Does the CIA not have people who read 100 uh, memoirs of foreign ministry officials or something? <laughs> I'm sure they have much better things to to do with their time. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it just it reflects, um, you know, the a, a few different things. First, Beijing has gone really good at counterintelligence and and just kind of rooting out those CIA networks. And the New York Times um, kind of documented that really nicely in, an, in a big 2017 piece that they had on, on the agency's network being taken down. And then I think there are some kind of peculiarities to Xi Jinping's China, which have made, you know, a tough job even tougher. The uh, ubiquity of surveillance technology makes meeting sources and, and keeping anything private um incredibly difficult um and then the, you know xi jinping's anti-corruption campaign means that uh, you, you know those those briefcases full of catch which are so useful in recruiting assets are um you know much more closely monitored than they would have been 10 or 15 years ago 
that and of course the fact that you know Xi Jinping has kind of consolidated power so effectively means that instead of looking at the inner circles of seven or even nine Politburo Standing Committee members, you're you're kind of trying to get into the very small inner circle of of one person um, who is relatively isolated and incredibly closely guarded. Kind of all of those things have come together to make human intelligence gathering incredibly difficult in China. You know, human intelligence gathering, that those are sort of like the cheat codes, but like eating your peas and vegetables is what it seems like um, uh, Yang Jiechi does every day reading the New York Times. I don't think there are many people in the U.S. government who open Renminbi every day. You know, there's there's been a push uh, in Congress uh, to sort of fund more open source China research. Apparently, the CIA is like restructuring to create a, a new China initiative because right. I guess they didn't have one beforehand or something. Do you have a take on sort of like to what extent the U.S. intelligence community is trying to adapt and, you know, not only just try to like hack stuff, but also just read what's out there and and maybe get a little better at sort of understanding the audience to the to the play of Chinese politics? Yeah, I mean, they're definitely pushing um, harder toward using more open source material. I'm sure if representatives of the various agencies were here, they would say accurately that they've had people reading the People's Daily for, for many, many decades. But of course, the obvious retort is, well, why so few? And, you know, that they're, they're investing in in staffing off on Mandarin speakers, which has always been something difficult for them. And it's it's a process which is made, uh, you know, kind of doubly difficult by the, the complexities of getting a security clearance, which mean that if you spent very much time on the ground in China or have family ties to the country, it can be it can be quite difficult to get through that process. So, you know, traditionally, it's kind of had to train up people from from scratch. And that's made open source collection more difficult. And if, and there's just the resourcing constraints, you know, the, the long-term focus on the, the greater Middle East and the conflicts going on there and the, the post 9-11 threats to homeland security have just meant that China has not been prioritized in, in the way that perhaps it should have been. And that's something that's been acknowledged um, pretty frankly, in truth, by, you know, Bill Burns, the new director of the CIA and and, and various other people at the the top of the Biden administration and they're, they're trying to turn it around, but it's a, it's a slow process and it's a very, very hard target under Xi Jinping. Coming back to going down our, our, our list of uh, our favorite uh, modern Chinese foreign ministry officials. So Pete, Wang Yi, what has he been up to? How did he get to the position he's in today? And what's it like taking a plane ride with him and some other Politburo members flying off to Geneva or uh, Washington, D.C.? Unfortunately, Wang Yi doesn't take any... Um, foreign press with him on um on overseas trips so i can only i can only speculate from from kind of great distance i think that just just like on the u.s secretary of state's plane there's a chance if you you know when, when wang flies with xi there's a chance of facetime with with the top leader there that's maybe very very difficult to to come by in beijing and there's also a little bit of downtime and bonding and so so i i, I heard this anecdote about um uh, she and, and and Wang drinking Mao Tai together on the the plane, um, which I think is is probably true by all accounts. Xi Jinping enjoys Mao Tai on many occasions, and it makes sense to me that that Wang would have managed to uh, work himself into into one of those. But apparently, he, he doesn't he doesn't like Desmond Shum enough to drink with him. <laughs> that was a detail in, in Red Roulette that like she wouldn't wouldn't drink around him. Um, yeah, I I love someone telling you. 
that not only did they drink a lot together, but they would drink more than the other officials. So I wonder if there's like a Mienza thing going on where all the other officials feel like they have to, after two shots, be like, oh, I can't do it anymore just to make she look good. Or if these guys are actually uh, really killing themselves and, step- and stepping up to the, you know, alcoholic plate. I don't know about Wang Yi. My impression is that Xi Jinping can really take his liquor, but. Uh, so <clears throat> earlier, I guess earlier this year, um, Kirk Campbell, who's the sort of top U.S. US official on um, the Asia-Pacific, uh, Indo-Pacific area, um, said that Wang Yi and Yang Yichu are not within, I think, 100 miles or something of Xi Jinping's inner circle. Um, I'm curious so to what extent you agree with that statement, especially given some of the, 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 the research and um, anecdotes you re- relayed about Wang Yi and Xi's relationship. Uh, how close do you actually think they are? And if they aren't that close, where do you think like she is getting his foreign policy advice from? Like who who are there like closer confidants to people? Kirk Campbell in a subsequent event, uh I can't remember if he used the words I'm sorry, but he kind of semi retracted that that statement. I I, <laughs> I think it's a little bit off. I think that um it's accurate in the sense that both of both Yang Jishu and Wang Yi are career Chinese diplomats and then never going to have the same standing inside the system as someone who has come up on a kind of purely political um track inside the communist party and 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 neither of them are really elite political players in in the sense that i i suspect then they're, they're not particularly involved in making deals over who gets to govern what province or what happens to the chinese economy you know, they, they are both very much in this kind of diplomatic lane and I suspect um, are kind of made to stay there. Um, so so in that in that sense, it's true that they're not especially close to the inner circle. I think I think the place where it's probably off is that both of them, as far as I understand, do have Xi Jinping's ear on foreign policy issues. I've heard um, accounts of other officials being kind of ushered out of the room when she wants to have a one-on-one with a foreign counterpart and Yang being asked to stay behind and, and to kind of advise she and listen in on the, the, the details of those conversations. And that to me does suggest that, that she recognizes his value kind of at least as an advisor and as someone who understands um, the outside world. Also the simple fact that he was promoted to the Politburo. I mean, I think that that shows that Xi Jinping in, in general thinks that foreign policy is important and that it's very important to have a U.S. expert at that kind of very high level. And and it it, it sort of signals that, that Yang qualifies. And I think the same thing when it comes to, to Wang Yi on, on, on diplomacy in general, but then especially on Asia and Japan, where his kind of primary expertise lies. So they kind of have this, this functional role that's very important and does involve some real closeness to Xi, but they're not sitting down in the inner sanctums of elite politics, if that makes sense. It's interesting thinking about Yang Jiechi and the fact that on the one hand, he has to walk around and call Xi's speeches precious spiritual resources, but these are probably the most worldly folks in the Politburo. They're the ones who spent time abroad and have you know been reading the New York Times for a while. I'm curious, he connecting this to... Your your sort of closing anecdote in the book right. about this young uh, diplomat who you met in 2017, who asks you with like, um, who sort of like very naively asks you like if Tiananmen was an American plot. To what extent these folks, 
believe all of this? Because, you know, there is the the sort of discipline and, and the towing the party line aspect of these folks. But I mean, is, is there a way to sort of peer in the heart, in the, in the heart of hearts of any of these, uh, junior as well as, um, uh, as well as more senior folks who've, who've sort of seen history over the decades? It's, it's really, um, it's really difficult to decipher what, um, I'm just looking up the name of a book title actually, which I wanted to, to cite. It, it, it's tough to kind of pick apart like how much of that is 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 accurate and you know true to what they think and then how much is is just like them towing the line for foreigners and i think it's a mixture of the two and the the kind of closest way that i can think of it is like listening to you know i'm a british person in dc and so i the u.s foreign policy rhetoric in a slightly different way to how an american might view it and listening to american politicians simultaneously talk about america as a, as a chosen nation and a special nation which stands above above others and is 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 exceptional but then also listening to them acknowledge you know shortcomings and, and difficulties and and allegations of torture and invading iraq in 2003 and all of these kind of things and and i think it is possible for them to hold these kind of two sometimes contradictory images in their head at the same time and to talk about both sincerely even if they can't completely square those circles i i think for chinese officials the the circle that they need to square is is probably bigger and it's harder to square and those those two images of like the way that that they talk about themselves in propaganda and the way that he works in china probably that gulf is much much bigger than it would be in the case of the united states but i think that the kind of the, the challenge of holding two things in your head simultaneously and still being able to function is, is kind of common a- across sure. the two and i i don't see any reason to sort of doubt their sincerity when they when they talk about these things so you have this line um with john Kerry when he talks to wang yi and at one point, he kind of freelances and tells him, look, like, you should really get to know the Dalai Lama. He's like, not that bad a guy after you have a few cokes with him. And Wang Yi immediately flips from sort of like open-minded, liberal, whatever. This is still like 2013, 2014 to this guy is a wolf in sheep's clothing. You're crazy. No, he's horrible and terrible. It's It's almost like it doesn't matter whether in Wang Yi's heart of hearts he thinks China should relate to you know Tibetan you know Tibetan leadership and, and rule Tibet in a different way, right? Because like it's been decided, he's not gonna change it. And his job is to uh you know spread the spread the gospel to the rest of the world. And that sort of cognitive dissonance is like I think almost easier to reconcile if you live in a system where it's so obvious what you have to do, right? Like where there is a party line and you have to tow it and you can always fall back on that party line, right? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, you know, the 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 fact that Young's the way that he sort of acts in those situations is 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 performative is is pretty nicely demonstrated by the just the sheer consistency of the language that he employs over time and the fact that yeah, you know, the Dalai Lama is a clown. He's a wolf in sheep's clothing. These are not Yang Jiechi uh, idiosyncratic yeah. phrases. They they are stock foreign ministry phrases, which all officials will fall back on when they they need to. And Yang delivers the lines with like a special passion and gusto. But but um, I think that you know he he's very much falling back on a political 
safe space when he does that. And there's, there's probably a, a pretty strong degree of sincerity there, but he, he kind of works it out rhetorically in a way that is very much sanctioned by the system. Yeah. It comes back to an anecdote you had earlier when you interviewed some old professors of Chinese students back in the 70s and talking about how they had such a hard time, like initially processing like open ended questions um, with the teacher not kind of giving you the answer and the line and how that was a really big learning experience for them. And it's it's interesting thinking about how these are the same people who like were were being pushed at you know the Kennedy School or whatever to um to sort of think in that way, but their job nowadays, you know, at least at least in their outfit facing roles, is is not to do that sort of grappling and negotiation with uh with foreign officials as 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 much as it is to sort of be part of the you know civilian army. Both Wang Yi and uh, Yang Yechu are nearing ten years at their current positions. Uh, Wang Yi as as foreign minister, Yang Yechu as uh, director uh, or secretary general or whatever of the Central Foreign Affairs Commission. It seems Yang Yechu will probably have to retire, I think, given his age. Do you have any thoughts on who are likely to succeed them? Do you think Huang will just uh, take take up Yang, Yang's uh, current role? Will have a, just a new foreign minister? Or do you have any thoughts on sort of possible changes in foreign minister leadership um, going into the 20th part of Congress uh, next year? I mean, obviously, I have no idea what's going to happen. But um, that that shouldn't stop me trying to answer the question. What one person who's spoken about a lot is is Lo Yicheng, um, who is uh, one of the vice foreign ministers and has kind of shown up in a variety of settings that that suggests that he might be poised to take over from from Wang as foreign minister at some point. Um, yeah, you know, I don't I don't know like the the last. The, you know, five years ago, I remember there was a lot of speculation that Song Tao from the International Liaison Department was going to replace Wang Yi. That didn't happen. So you never want to trust that kind of Beijing rumor mill too much. But I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of focus on, on, on Le as someone who might, um, who might take over. And you can see it just kind of from his, his lots of, he's kind of being teed up for a lot of high profile media appearances at home and abroad. He's making very, wide-ranging speeches on Chinese foreign policy. So there does seem to be this indication that he's being um, prepared for some kind of high-level role, and perhaps that will be foreign minister, perhaps it's something else. And do you think that we're going to see any sort of larger changes in uh, culture at the foreign ministry, given that we're moving a bit away, changing generations a little bit from the the generation that really um, experienced a lot of the hardships of the Cultural Revolution, etc.? Um, to to a, a generation that maybe came of age uh, a bit a bit later um, during the reform and opening period. Do you think that that, that will affect uh, much, or do you think that they will still have to hew so closely to to party line, et cetera, that it won't have as much? So I think that you know one of the one of the really striking things about the foreign ministry is this consistency in its culture from from forty nine all the way through till today, which is kind of incredible when you think about. The, the changes that China has gone through during that time, the the idea that this one institution could um, could maintain such a similar approach in the way that it conducts itself, um, and I think you know the reason for that is that that this kind of civilian army model uh, is very well suited to conducting diplomacy in a in a system with the kind of peculiar um, expectations and, and limitations that that. The Chinese Communist Party places on on the conduct of, of foreign policy. I don't really expect that to change. I think it's very well suited to China. It seemed it, it held up during the period of 
you know, international communism it held up during the reform opening era. And one of the things that, you know, Wang Yi, when he became foreign minister and had to deal with this kind of new role that China was taking on in the wake of the global financial crisis, this new leader, Xi Jinping, who had these startling new ambitions for China and the world, Wang, in his internal speeches, went back again and again to this theme of we work like the People's Liberation Army in civilian clothing. So, so just because it's been, it's been so successful and so useful in so many periods, I, I don't really see that, that aspect of it changing. But I think maybe, maybe some of the, the kind of cultural assumptions of, uh, of Chinese diplomats will change along the way a little bit. And I guess, you know, we've already started to see that, but we will now have, a, you know, increasingly generations of Chinese diplomats who have only ever known China as a strong power and have only ever known the era of reform and opening and then the era of Xi Jinping, haven't seen China at its weakest, haven't seen the dangers of the Cultural Revolution, only kind of know, know about them secondhand. I, I, you've got to think on some level that will, will have an impact. I remember talking to a pretty young diplomat in Beijing and asking him, you know, what, what does it feel like? To, and this guy would be you know, I'm in my mid thirties, it's probably about the same age as me, um, maybe a little younger, but like, what is it room with, um, foreign counterparts and, you know, does, does it, does it feel good to come from a country that's becoming more and more powerful? And the person said, oh yeah, it feels great. You know, when I first started here, we always felt like other countries didn't, um, didn't respect China. And you could feel that they kind of look down on you. But now when we walk into the room, you can feel the mood change and they, they know that we're a powerful country and they have to listen to us. And so I would think that those kind of experiences would, would just kind of amplify this existing trend towards kind of assertiveness and, and confidence on the part of, of Chinese officials. Um, but, you know, we'll have to see. Hi, folks, this is Callum Quinn, China Talks editor. I'm currently in London and I'm interested in hosting a meetup for China Talk listeners on the evening of February 24th at a as yet undetermined location somewhere near King's Cross Station. If you're interested in joining, the Eventbrite link is in the show notes and I really hope to see some of you there. Another new dynamic, of course, over the past 30 years is social media and the ability for the Chinese state to kind of drive the discussion, at least on foreign policy, I think was pretty consistent. Uh, you know, you didn't have sort of like revolts from below about people being angry about certain foreign policy moves. Um, but now, you know, particularly from the right, you have these like anecdotes of people sending uh, the foreign ministry calcium because they think they need more backbone to stand up to folks. And I think even more apparent in the domestic uh, regulatory context in the in the tech sector in particular, you're seeing once something kind of goes viral, the government is almost taking a reactive stance and sort of trying to, uh, you know, catch up to where the sort of regulating capital or, or platform economies, not a uh, platform companies, not uh, doing their fair share for the market or working their employees too hard or whatever. Um, what's your take, Pete, on the dynamic between sort of Internet nationalism and the, the literal wolf, the like, you know, the, the embodied wolf warrior diplomacy we've seen over the past few years? Yeah, I think that there's a pretty sort of mutually reinforcing dynamic between the two. As you, as you said, in the in the 90s and the 2000s, there was this feeling that kind of public opinion had got out ahead of the foreign ministry and was much more nationalistic. 
had much higher expectations for the role that China was going to play in the world and that the Chinese diplomats were kind of scrambling to keep up. They didn't want to match that incredibly abrasive tone that many internet users urged because they knew it would be damaging for China's international reputation. And at the time, they had cover from the Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao leadership, which on the whole, at least until 2008-9, wanted to kind of cultivate this popular image in the world and improve China's reputation. But you know, that's that's kind of changed recently. And I think we've kind of seen this this like melding of popular nationalist discourse and and the way that the government expresses itself. You know, 10 years ago, if you read an editorial in the Global Times or read the, the rantings of a nationalist on an internet forum in China, that would have seemed incredibly different to the, the kind of relatively restrained tone of the Chinese foreign ministry. And that's just not true now. I think the Global Times sounds pretty similar to the, the foreign ministry on your average day. And so I, I, I guess that I think of those those kind of sentiments as having moved much closer to each other. And it's not, you know, there's 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 still light between them. When the China-India border tensions were kind of at their peak, there were internet users suggesting that foreign ministry officials were being weak and traitors and weren't standing up for the motherland. And so there's there's still pressure on that front. But I think I think a lot of it has has kind of been solved by. You know, firstly, Xi Jinping's move towards nationalism and the tone that that's helped set for China's foreign relations, but then also the the foreign ministry's embrace of wolf warrior diplomacy and just how popular that seems to have been from T-shirts with Yang Jiechi's nationalist slogans on them um, through to viral clips and and uh, fan sites for for senior Chinese diplomats. So yeah, this this kind of meeting of minds there between those two forces. Uh, I guess one one last question that I have is whether or not you think we've seen over the last like six months or so sort of a decline in some of the more, I guess I would say, undisciplined or unhinged social media presence by Chinese, uh, by Chinese sort of uh, foreign diplomatic accounts. Um, I remember sort of the, I think earlier this year, there's the, the, someone in the Irish embassy posted something about a wolf and a lamb and about China not being yeah. a lamb, not being a wolf but also not being a lamb or something. And I feel like there's been less of that actually in, in recent months. Um, so maybe they've actually tightened, they've realized how unprofessional it looks and tightened up on it. Uh, not sure if you have any any impressions on that. But. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, the the Irish embassy tweet you're referring to was a particular kind of classic of its genre. <laughs> really, really <laughs> confoundingly confusing. Anecdotally, I think that there probably has been a tapering of kind of wolf warrior tactics on on Twitter. And I know there's a study being done at the moment at University College Dublin on, you know, how far that change has been real. And, and in particular, how far Xi Jinping's um, remarks at a, a, a Politburo study session over the summer where he talks about how China needed to cultivate the more lovable image in, his, in the world. You know, how far that has kind of influenced the tone. And, I, I you know, my impression is probably that that some of that has has been reduced a little bit. I mean, you still hear statements from senior foreign ministry officials, you know, calling saying that America is sick and 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 this America's political system is sick. The the kind of things that really wouldn't have been at home in the Chinese diplomacy five, ten, fifteen years ago. And so I I I think that kind of the the abrasiveness and the assertiveness has continued. But I think that on that kind of tactical side, especially on social media, things have have calmed down a little bit. 
And I, you know, that's, that's a tactical decision, but it's also, um, it's a reflection of policy as well, right? Like the, the two countries are beginning after a period of great uncertainty at the beginning of the Biden administration, where they were trying to suss each other out. They're starting to hold more regular meetings for senior leaders, have the militaries talk to each other, you know, these kind of things. And, and I think, you know, from Beijing's perspective, it's not helpful to have diplomats derailing that, that process. So it's a tactical decision and it also reflects policy. Uh, next book. I don't know. I've been thinking about it a lot. I haven't settled on anything. Um, uh, yeah, we'll have to see. I don't think it's going to be a kind of Washington. In- so what are, what are the contenders? There go. Sorry. Oh, come on. It's a podcast. No one listens to the show anyways. <laughs> no, I can't. I can't do that. They're all way. They're too half baked to share. These are like, these are at the kind of like singing alone in the shower stage of, of development. I can't. Um, I, 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 I guess what I, what I want is another chance to try and put myself in the head of people on the Chinese side. Um, I, I, what I really enjoyed about this book was that like, I, um, I spent so much of my time in Beijing listening to the output of the Chinese government that was directed at the public and directed at journalists. And the, the system does such an incredible job of kind of chiseling out the human idiosyncrasies of the system and presenting this united kind of, uh, you know, front toward the outside world and, um, you know, never showing any daylight or much daylight between officials. And, and it's very easy in, in that context to forget that you're dealing with human beings who have kind of emotions and um, personal agendas. And so I really enjoyed getting my hands on these these memoirs and trying as best I could to kind of get inside the heads and explain things from from their perspective. And I would love the chance to to do that again. Um I don't know what that looks like, but that's that's kind of one of the things I'm looking out for, I guess. I want to ask you guys, what do you think I should write next? I mean the thing that isn't going to that probably is is not going to happen, but I I really want to see is some sort of history and or uh, it is a history of, of the MSS and sort of history of like Chinese approaches to intelligence mm. and espionage. Probably too hard a target, but given your sort of current, uh, given, given sort of your, your current work on Intel, I, I don't think mm. there is that much existing literature out there in, in the English language. And I think it's uh, fascinating topic since I don't, no one really, everyone knows the MSS exists, but no one really talks about what what it actually does yeah peter mattis is the guy who's who's got who everyone's got a force to write that there are some memoirs like if you look at some of peter's um scholarly research in the footnotes you can see these memoirs that he's gone to and i imagine that they're they're infinitely harder to work with than than foreign ministry memoirs but they do exist um yeah because matt you know matt brazil i think is actually writing that book uh and he'll be back on to discuss it because i mean the trick you can do with the foreign ministry stuff is you can interview the foreign diplomats, right? And then so you can sort of cross-check and and bounce back and forth. But like, you know, I was just going to say do it on the PLA and just interview, like, what's it like to be a general? Because um, I'm sure those guys have 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 memoirs too, but it's, it's um, uh, you run into the same thing, right? You interview the, like, Indian general who fought against mm. the person. Like, you're not going to learn anything about, like, what was in their headspace from that. Um, so 
It's tricky. I mean, I I think like this is sort of the book I want to write at some point is doing this for for like technology policy and regulators just because I think it's like a little less sensitive and there's more out there and, uh, you know, you can sort of, you, you know, you're not really <laughs> dealing with state secrets when you're thinking about how to re- regulate telecommunications or something. So I'm hopeful. Oh, fun. That I don't know if these people even write memoirs because maybe they think their lives are yeah. too boring and they'd be shocked that someone would write, want to write a book I would about read them. it. But um, uh, <laughs> that, I think, is, uh, is the direction that I'll maybe go a few years down the road. So in terms of uh, closing uh, outro music, uh, Tian Chi Chen went to Nixon in China. Uh, his staff had no idea what his response would be, but apparently he thought it was hysterical. All right. This was so much fun. Let's do this again. Yeah.